This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. This is World Cafe. I'm Raina Duris. If you've watched an awards show in the last decade, odds are you've at least seen Billy Porter. His bold, gender-defying red carpet looks have made him a step-and-repeat mainstay. He's at those awards shows for another reason, too. He just keeps winning them. He's won an Emmy for his lead role as Pray Tell on the TV show Pose. He's won a Grammy and two Tonys for his work on Broadway. And he's been honored for his work as an LGBTQ plus activist. But there's another side to Billy Porter that he wants to show you. One that he began nurturing years ago. The pop singer side. Billy has a new album out called Black Mona Lisa, a record of deeply personal lyrics set to club beats and dance jams. He joins me today to talk about the album and lots, lots more. That's coming up. First, here's the opening track from Black Mona Lisa. Billy Porter broke a sweat. I lost my watch. I left it back in purgatory. Go and call the cops. Cause I don't fit inside your story It goes on and on On and on The lucky ones are born outside of the lion's den Turn it off Those days are done Winners like the history So baby I win Clipped wings can grow back With good intentions I'm tired of asking for their permission That was Broke a Sweat by Billy Porter from his new album, Black Mona Lisa. This is World Cafe. I'm Raina Duris. Billy Porter joins me today. Billy, welcome to the World Cafe. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So happy you are here. That is such a triumphant song. That line, winners write the history, so baby, I win. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. It's the truth. (laughs) It is. We're going to talk about a whole bunch of your history and and how you've been winning uh, during this interview. You've said that this album has been 30 years in the making. You have done so, so much in the last three decades. It wasn't like you were just tucked away working on a record. Why do you see this album as, as a culmination of the last 30 years? It's the first time musically that I've been able to harness all of the parts of myself and distill them into the music, right? My voice, my singing voice is the gift from on high. Like, that's the thing. I started singing when I was five years old, you know, and it, was my savior, it was my healing, it was my weapon for so long. And, uh, you know, ironically, when my first mainstream R&B album came out back in 1997, all of a sudden my voice didn't matter. And all of a sudden it became about everything else but my voice and my music. Um, And that was just weird. You know, it was weird to me. It's like, so I'm gay. So I was just sort of dismissed and put out. 
And I continue to do the music myself. We're going to talk about so many of the things that you have done, but it is interesting when you say that this uh, album brings so much of it together because it is an album maybe you could not have made at the beginning of your career. Like you needed to make this now. I never could have made it at the beginning. You know, the world was not ready for me. You know, the world was not ready for a black queer energy to be in the space leading. It's a, it's a, you know, I came up during the AIDS crisis. You know, a lot, I've lost a lot of my friends. We lost a lot of our creatives. We lost a whole generation of folk. And now, you know, we as queer people of a certain age, I'm 54 years old, it's time to lead. It's time for us to be, to get in the leadership position and show the world who we are. Well, let me dig into your your journey, I guess we could say, uh, a little bit now. Because I think there are, people have lots of reasons that they know you, but odds are there are some people listening right now who didn't know that you released an album of, of mainstream R&B back in 1997. It was self-titled. Uh, I'm going to play a little bit of a song from that record called Love is on the Way. That was a bit of Love is on the Way from Billy Porter's 1997 debut album, A World Cafe. I'm joined by Billy Porter today. His new album is called Black Mona Lisa. Um, So maybe you could take us back there. You talked about how people weren't focused on the music. There were so many other things that that stood in your way. They were focused on who I was sleeping with. Yeah, what was your experience like? Oh, it's so traumatic. I don't really like to talk about it. That okay, that's okay. And you, can, and you can read about it in my book, Unprotected. But just suffice it to say that it was 1997. It was R&B. And, you know, the Black community is very homophobic. You know, we've moved and we've grown and we've expanded and there's been a lot of change. And I recognize that and I'm excited about that. And we still have a long way to go. Um, But I was just a, you know, I was collateral damage of that. Yeah. Homophobia. Period. These songs on this album, I mean, there are, are times where you... You can see details, and, and I can I can identify them after, you know, when I know things about your life, I can sort of identify some of them as autobiographical. On the whole, is this, do you feel it's an autobiographical album? Yeah. Yes, of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's no reason to do anything different from that at this point. Um, you know, the music business is tricky. And there are a lot of people who have a lot of opinions about, you know, who I am or what I should be doing or, you know. And what I love about this album the most is that I finally don't care what anybody else thinks. At this point in your career, are people still saying, oh, Billy, you should be doing this and not 
the thing that you want? All the time. Really? You'd be surprised all the time, particularly not in other spaces, but in this space. Right. Yeah. In this space. Yeah, I'm, still. I mean, I don't know if you'd want to share, but is there, what have you been told you should do instead of this? Oh, it's the same conversation. I'm still having the same conversation that I had in 1997, which is the music's not black enough. I'm still having that conversation. And I'm so disgusted and frustrated by it that I don't even know what to do anymore. You know, it's ironic because I've spent, because I spent the first 25 years of my career trying to get the gatekeepers of that part side of the industry to take me seriously as an actor. Now, that part of it has happened. And I'm hearing things like, oh, I didn't know Pray Tell could sing. I, <laughs> I mean, I know people have gotten on the Billy Porter train at different stops. I get that. I understand that. But even inside of something like Pose, I'm singing on the show. Right. I sang on every season of yeah. the show. It's not a secret. And, you and yet, right. the general public making the connection that I'm a recording artist, not an actor who sings. Right. There's a, there's this, it's a, it's a fine line, but it's a big one to try to cross that I'm finding yeah. right now. And so I'm, we're, you know, we're in the trenches. It's like, even with the marketing, there's so many things out there. I'm promoting everything. I'm right here with you today. You know, I'll go into a gay bar and the boys will all but genuflect and bow down to me. And then I'll ask, have you heard the new album? They don't even know it's out. So I'm in a, so I am in a restructuring space right now where I am back in the driver's seat trying to figure out how to make sure that my work gets out there properly and that the people just know it's there. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's a really interesting, it's been a really interesting and challenging journey. Music, this music part right now. It's interesting, but I'm I'm here for it and I'm game and I'm, we're, we're doing it. Well, let's get some more of that music out there right now, and then we'll come back and we'll talk some more yes, of the please. album. The album's called Black Mona Lisa. We're going to hear Baby Was a Dancer. This is Roll mm -hmm. Cafe. Yes. She was born in September of 69 In the summer of lovers in mid that night So since day when she was in overdrive Always looking for love and she couldn't find Billy Porter, Baby Was a Dancer on World Cafe. I'm Raina Duras, joined by Billy Porter today. That's a song from his new album, Black Mona Lisa. That song has some real disco flavor. Yes, the whole album grew out of my desire to honor 
dance music, disco music, house music, the clubs, what the clubs did for me and my generation. You know, we were fighting. We were fighting during the week. We were fighting for our lives during the AIDS crisis. And then we would go to gay church, which was the club, so we could fellowship with each other. And so we could remind each other of our worth and re-energize ourselves so we could then go back out into the world collectively and fight. So I wanted to honor that. A lot of people don't really, a lot of people who aren't queer and who aren't HIV positive like myself or anything like that, a lot of people don't realize that that's what happened and that's what it was and that's why the clubs were so important. Well, I'm, I'm so glad that you mentioned the club as a church because in that song, in Baby Was a Dancer, you refer to the literal church and mm -hmm. uh, you mm -hmm. sing that song about preachers telling you that you were a sinner um, and about the freedom that you found in performing. Uh, and I want to go way back now mm -hmm. so people know some more about your story because I, I, you found the joy in performing really, really early on. I mean, you said you started singing when you were five. You won a mm -hmm. talent show in fifth grade. <laughs> And that really changed things for you. Could you tell us about that? Well, yes, because I was always a sissy. And I was always bullied. You know, like an everyday traumatic thing, always bullied. And in the fifth grade, there was a talent show. And I signed up and I decided to sing in front of the people at school. And I won. And... You know, it was a less cynical time. This was the 70s. So the bullies at that time actually recognized the talent. And that was the reason they stopped bullying me. <laughs> Later on in life, they just resented me, so they kept bullying me. But right. at this point... For a minute, it worked there. <laughs> but for a minute, for a minute, it worked. And all of a sudden, I was able to understand the power of this gift I had been given. It's a gift. I mean, you came out as gay when you were a teenager, and I think that would have mm -hmm. been, I guess, in the 80s, which I think would have been hard. Yeah, and that would have been, this kind of blew my mind, because that would be a difficult time to come out as a teenager, even if you weren't raised in the Pentecostal church. How did you find the courage to come out at a time and a place where that wasn't a common thing? You know, people talk about courage all the time. And I go back and I try to think about that word. You know, people call me courageous all the time and I think about that word and I've never thought about it that way. And I'm trying to embrace the word. But for me, there was no other choice. For me, it was this or you die. Right. And so I chose life. Instead, that doesn't feel courageous to me. And at the same time, I understand that it is. I, I know that um, being in the church was a, you were exposed to lots of gospel music. You're exposed to mm -hmm. tons of music there. But obviously mm -hmm. it was a, a difficult, conflicted relationship that you had with it. What did you learn though, watching and listening to gospel music that you were able to bring with you as you embarked on this life as a musician and as a performer? There's something that we talk about in the church called the anointing. 
when the saints, what we call them, the saints, the church people, <clears throat> see something special in you. What I've learned and begun to understand in my adult life is my anointing, my purpose, my calling, dare I say my ministry, and I do, is this. My mother was transformed from being that Christian, that fire and brimstone Christian that believed I was going to hell because I was gay. People in my church community cursed me from their pulpits, saying that I would never be blessed. My mother dug through her Bible and chose me. My mother left that congregation, left that denomination and went to a different one wow. who were affirming of LGBTQ plus people. The fact that I live right now in the, and occupy and take up the space that I take up shows all of those misinformed people, loving, well-intentioned, misinformed people that the dogma of their religion and their rhetoric no longer has any credibility. Blessings upon blessings is what my life has always been. I'm put on this earth to transform that. I know why I'm here. Let me quickly reintroduce you. I'm talking to Billy Porter. His new album is called Black Mona Lisa. This is World Cafe. So I feel like I'm going to have to condense some things here because there is, like I said, You've done so much. Um, I know it wasn't all smooth sailing. You, I mean, you moved to L.A. You moved back to New York. At one point, you declared bankruptcy, I think, in around mm -hmm. 2007. It was a really yes. rough year for you. You um, read the book. You I read, read the, the book. book. Y'all got to read the book, babies. And I think <laughs> I think that people have a generally, they have an idea that, okay, if you want to be a performer, it isn't an easy road to walk, no matter what. Like, it takes time. There's a lot of rejection. There's a lot of difficulty. How did you find that strength to persevere through it? When Because you knew what you wanted. How did you keep pushing? Once again, I will say it again. There is no plan B. This is the only thing I can do. And when I was in my, you know, when I was in a valley period, because I've had several valley periods, but when I'm in 2000, when I moved to L.A. and I couldn't get arrested, I couldn't even get an audition, you know, I thought, well, what can I, like, I can't do anything else. And uh, a, fr a producer friend of mine, Bruce Cohen, you know, we sat, I sat, he sat down with me and he said, you know, you're really special and you're really different and there's no one like you and you don't fish the status quo. And I've heard that before and I was like, blah, 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 blah. But he was the first person to then say, if you can create it yourself, I would say, start trying to do that. 
Have you ever written anything? Have you ever, you know, and it's like, I'm a, I'm the last generation of artists who were taught in these training programs to be a brilliant interpreter of other people's material. Anything. Be brilliant at that. I didn't have the internet. I didn't have social media. What I love about this, the kids in this new generation is that they are empowered for better or for worse to know that whatever it is, it should come from them. Right. That is a power that I only began harnessing in my 30s. And so it expanded my possibilities. You know, it expanded them even more. I have a first look deal at FX Networks right now, and we just sold four scripted ideas to them. Congratulations. Like, I'm not, thank you, but but I, I just say that to say that I do not have the luxury to choose one thing. Because if I choose one thing and that one thing doesn't work out, I'm ass out. And so it's like I have to walk through the doors that are open to me, even in that valley period. Even when I thought, oh, well, the acting's not going on, the music's not going on, what do I do? God said, go to script school. Go to screenwriting school and learn how to write and do it yourself. I went back to school. I went to the screenwriting program at UCLA. I started directing in this, per in this period of time when no one would hire me as a singer or, or an actor or anything. You went to scriptwriting school. You did make things and you thought about, you know, maybe performing was off for a while, but you landed the role of Lola in the first production of Kinky Boots, won a Tony for that role. Uh, with all the productions that you'd done up to that point and all the roles you'd played, why do you think your performance in that one connected with people so deeply? Okay, hold that thought. The first thing that I have to say to you is my return to the stage mm -hmm. was in Tony Kushner's Angels in America. Yes. And that's a really important part of it because when I saw it in 1994, it was when I saw Jeffrey Wright play the role of Belize who was a black queer character and I had never seen who was like who was like the moral like grounded energy of the show I had never seen anything that looked like that yeah. so 1994 and the world didn't look at me like that right this was still the time when oh he's a singer he can't act right so from 1994 to to 2010 I was working on myself and the and the revival the off broadway revival of Angels in America came around and I was cast in it. So that was the first like, oh, okay, this can now possible, possibly be on my terms. Right. Then Lola happened. Leave expectations at the door. Just let your eyes explore my cinematic flair. From my boot to derriere, I've got a lazy silken feel. With arms as hard as steel, I am freedom, I'm constriction, a potpourri of contradiction. Leave that humdrum pace of plum behind. Once you walk inside these doors, you're mine. Now let me. 
me blow your mind and light you up. And then here I am. Yes, ma'am, I'm alone. And I think the reason it happened in such a profound way was because I dared to choose myself all those years ago. You know, I was maligned in this industry and told I was too flamboyant, too gay, too much of a sissy, too, 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 all of these things. Had I not leaned into my own truth, I would not have been Lola. I had already lived it. You are a writer. You are a director. You are a musician, an artist, a singer, a performer. A producer. A producer. (laughs) A producer. The list goes on and on. One other thing I think that uh, you are well known for now is is your adventurous red carpet looks. And I know that it Uh, was while doing press for Kinky Boots that you started investing in fashion. And investing is your words here. I know your business mm-hmm. manager told you you were spending too much money on clothes. At Boy, did you read the book, girl. <laughs> Thank you, you for reading the book. <laughs> I mean, could you talk about the thinking behind your decision to invest? Because invest is an important word here, to invest yeah. in what you were wearing. Well, what I understood... Well, first of all, I grew up in the Black church. The Black church is a fashion show. I've always loved fashion. My great aunt Dorothy said, dress for the job you want, not the one you have. My favorite times of year were Christmas and Easter. I would get a new suit every Christmas and every Easter for church. I continued that tradition for myself till I was in my thirties. Like I have so many suits that are collecting dust because <laughs> I don't really wear them anymore. But so you have that part of me. I always took chances in fashion too. You know, for my whole life, people would tell me I looked ridiculous. People would laugh at me, whatever. I never cared. So, you know, I was, I I began to look at the, I, I began to understand that I am not just an individual actor or writer or, I'm a, I'm the brand. I'm a brand. That's a social media thing. Social media has taught us we are the brand, not the company. I am the brand. And so when I was in, and I hadn't been on Broadway since 1999, so now it's 2013. Or, and I'm 2012, actually, the fall of 2012, we were out of town. And I was at rehearsal. You know, we were in previews. I was at rehearsal. I looked like a bag lady. You know, and we had our first preview. You rehearsed during previews. Hurst during the day, fix things, and then you put them in at night. So I dressed for rehearsal. I came out of the first preview. People were at the stage door. They took pictures. I woke up the next morning. Those pictures were all over Facebook. And in that moment, I realized, oh, my God, I have to dress up every single day. Because the press is no longer just mainstream. It's this thing online. And so that's what I did. And it transformed how I was being perceived in the public. People made fun of me the whole time. Why are you dressing up every day? And, you know, what's interesting about the where I've landed is I never imagined that I would be 
sort of this non-binary, you know, degendering of fashion. I, I didn't have any desire to wear a dress. Even after playing Lola, it never occurred to me that that would be something that I could do or should do. You know, but I did understand that the women in show business get to show up and create another revenue stream for themselves by what they wear on the red carpet. Right. And why don't the men get to do that? Yeah, they don't, because, yeah, God, no one's ever like, wow, look at his suit. I mean, they why are sometimes. They are now a little bit more. They but. are now, but why? Why? Because it's the masculinity conversation. It's the toxic masculinity conversation. And, I've li- and I'm living it right now. You know, if you wear a dress, then nobody's going to see you as masculine and then you can't get work. And I'm living exactly that thing right now. You know, I'm still having the conversation of he's not serious. And it's like, no, I am, but that's okay. Whatever that is, that's y'all. That's not mine. And I have to say this out loud because I get attacked a lot. You ain't the only one. David Bowie came before you. I never said I was the only one. I never said I was the only one. It is a tradition. I do stand on the shoulders of those people who came before me. There aren't a lot of them, though. And nobody was doing it in this generation until me. Mm-hmm. Period. I'm talking to Billy Porter on World Cafe. You have graced many red carpets now at award shows. You've won a Grammy. You've won two Tonys. In 2019, you became the first openly gay black man to win an Emmy for a lead actor for your role as Pray Tell in the TV show Pose. Um, and th- there was a moment the first day that you started shooting Pose where you were kind of holding back your performance for the TV Yeah, because cameras. everybody told me I was too big. Yeah, Everybody so, told me I was too flamboyant. And director Ryan Murphy, he, he said he wanted more Billy Porter. In that moment, could you yeah, tell us that story? Yeah, I was. I, it, it was the first scene, the first scene that I ever shot, and it was a ball scene. You know, the category is, you know, that stuff. And I was, I think I was forty-seven years old. No, you know, nobody would even let me into the into the film and television door. Nobody would let me in. This was my first time that I was, you know, having a series regular role, and I didn't want to mess it up. And So I went in and I started doing what I thought was the mainstream television version of this. You know, I was supposed to be more subdued. I was supposed to pull it in. You know, film and television is about your eyes. You don't have to do so much. You know, I was just trying to do that. And I started and all of a sudden I heard cut from the other room and Ryan Murphy walks in with his coat over his shoulder because he always wears a coat over his shoulder. Now, if you ever see him, you'll see. He's always wearing a coat over his shoulder. It's so funny. <laughs> and he came up to me, and he said, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm just... And he's like, I need all of you. I need all of you. Don't worry about being too big. You can never be too big with me. Okay? Like, okay. You done unleashed the Kraken. You can't put her back. <laughs> He's like, I want the Kraken. And that's how it started. Well, what did it what did it mean to you in that moment? I mean, after so many occasions where you were told to pull it back or not be yourself or not be all of you, to be encouraged to be yourself as much as possible. Free. You know, he saw me 
and he freed me. And that I'm forever grateful. It was, it's such a gift. Everybody doesn't get that. When you walked on stage to accept that Emmy, you, you gave a speech that got a standing ovation, and I'm gonna play a little bit of that speech right now. We are the people, we as artists are the people that get to change the molecular structure of the hearts and minds of the people who live on this planet. Please don't ever stop doing that. Please don't ever stop telling the truth. I love you all, they're telling me to please stop. God bless you, God bless you. There's a part in there where you say, we as artists are the people that get to change the molecular structure of the hearts and minds of the people who live on this planet. So I want to take things back to the new album, Black Mona Lisa. How do you hope this music changes that molecular structure of people's hearts and minds? You know, my hope is that the music will transform and let the people, and let people who don't feel seen feel seen and loved and heard and worthy just as they are. We are all worthy just as we are. The last song that we're going to listen to from the album today, it's the last song that you wrote for the album. You sing about showing up honestly, about deserving love, about moving past fear. You can feel the power in this song. It's called Audacity. Oh, yes. This is Billy Porter on World Cafe. Audacity to show up honestly. How dare I believe that it's okay to be me? The audacity to speak without trembling, to fear not of my words, to fear not of my worthy. Sometimes I fall into damaging thoughts Like I don't deserve all the love that I got But then I take a second to breathe I always come back to me I always come back to the audacity From Billy Porter's new album, Black Mona Lisa, that song is called Audacity. This is World Cafe. Billy Porter has been my guest today. Black Mona Lisa is out now. Billy, thank you so much for your time. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm Raina Duras, back in a moment with more World Cafe. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Lisa. Good sleep should come naturally. And with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between Lisa and West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is expertly crafted from natural latex, natural wool, and certified safe foams to elevate your sleep sanctuary and support a greener tomorrow. Plus, every purchase helps fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Visit lisa.com to learn more. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the NPR Wine Club. Get the world of wine delivered to your door. When you join the NPR Wine Club, you'll receive the stories behind every bottle and favorite NPR shows and personalities arriving in liquid form, like Weekend Edition Cabernet and Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me Zinfandel. 
The NPR Wine Club is a delicious way to support NPR's programming. If you're 21 or older, uncork a special offer at nprwineclub.org slash podcast.